Well, it's good to be with you. It's good to be back in Greenville, my home. I always consider it home when I come back here. And, you know, I, when I was talking with Dad about coming back up, I selfishly asked him if I could speak. <laughs> and he graciously allowed me to do that, and that's why I'm so glad to be here tonight. And there's two things I think I've learned being away from Greenville for the past year and a half or so, is that, one, you will never find a church like this. Um, so be really thankful for what you have here at Colonial Hills Baptist Church. This is very rare. I know my dad has always said that, and, you know, maybe it kind of went one ear and out the other, but it's, it's true. This is a truly special church, and I will always consider you my uh, greatest church family, and I always am thankful to come back here, and I always just feel like I'm right at home. And the other thing that I know is that this is what God has called me to do. He's called me to preach God's preach His word and share the gospel to people that don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. That's the two things that He's taught me the last couple of year or last year and a half is that this is what He has for me in my life. And I know when I told my dad what I was preaching on, he said, "Are you sure? <laughs> because you're probably weary of hearing this at this point." But turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter eight. Weary. <laughs> Now, this is just going to serve as a jumping-off point, so I don't mean to preach or re-preach what my dad has already spoken on, and I hope I don't step on any toes here or preach something totally different. <laughs> but we're going to be in this chapter, and we'll use it as a jumping-off point for our topic for tonight. I am, as you're turning, I'm not here to burden you in any way. I'm not here to sort of load you down with a lot of cares, and I'm not here to concern you or worry you or just to put up all sorts of weights on you. As a preacher, I'm here to lift those burdens off of you. I'm here to unburden you and to free you, as Jesus says in Matthew 11, to give you rest, all you who we are weary and heavy laden. And I'm here to talk to you tonight about something that unites us as human beings. It goes across the whole world, this, this topic that we're talking about, it unites us and something that we can all feel, all relate with, and something we all experience. I'm talking about suffering. Tonight, I hope to show you how that we can suffer honestly. And so, if suffering honestly, we're going to look at um, Romans 8 and jump down to verse 16. And we'll read through verse 28 tonight. And then we'll pray. Verse 16 says, the Apostle Paul says, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit, that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. If so, be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected to the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the firstfruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, to wit the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. 
Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know that not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Let's pray. God, we are your people, and this is your book. And Lord, we have come here to learn about what your Son Jesus has done for us. And God, I pray that as this is opened, I pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that he would allow us to see what you would have us to see. Lord, open our eyes, open our ears, open our hearts. Allow your Spirit to have the liberty to move in hearts and souls and change them for your glory and by your grace. Jesus, we love you, and I thank you for this time. In your name I pray. Amen. Let me begin by telling you a story right off the bat. A story about a young girl who I believe is now an expert on suffering. You know, we could say the Apostle Paul was an expert on suffering. If you read Second Corinthians, you'll grasp that very quickly. But I think this young girl is now an expert on suffering herself. When she was 14, she was involved in a tragic Tragic car accident. She was on a youth uh, activity, and on the way home from Orlando, they were run off the road and into a canal. The bus tipped over and started sinking. Started sinking. Three young teenagers lost their lives that night. Three young men. They put another one into a coma, and it injured many more. But the adversity for this young girl was just beginning. You might think that's pretty crazy, but it was just beginning. She wasn't aware of it at the time because of the amount of shock that she went through because of the accident. But she had cracked her hip in the accident. And one day while she was running, still unaware of this crack in her hip, her hip shattered at 14 years old. She was put in traction for about six months, I believe. And confusion and chaos and calamity just riddled this time in her life. The doctors were unsure of her ever being able to walk again. This is a girl who was running, who was the fastest girl in her class. She was running and playing sports and all these sorts of things, and she had her whole life ahead of her. And God chose to take that away in a split second. Even The doctors were even considering of amputating her leg. Now, tell me, based on what we just read, was that situation good? Could you come away from that situation and read verse 28 of Romans 8 and say, this is working out for good? No, not at all. There was nothing good in that situation at all. It was bad. It was a moment of crisis and confusion. And in that moment, there was nothing good about it. So what's the point then? What's the point of that adversity? What are we to make of it? Well, I want to talk to you about suffering because I think that, among many other things, I think suffering is one of the greatest uh, things that we just don't understand. We don't know what to make of it. And we actually watched um, a film about that, about how the greatest thing that atheists have against Christians is to go at us and say, well, if God is good, then why does he allow all this pain and suffering into this world? And that very question is the very reason, it, it illustrates the very reason that we don't understand suffering at all. 
To even question why God would allow this makes us realize that we don't understand suffering. We don't even know what to pray for, Paul says in verse 26. We're inundated, you know, nowadays with news of ISIS and Ebola and epidemics and wars. And, you know, as as Jesus says, wars and rumors of wars. And I think it's all further evidences of man's depravity and man's desperate search for peace, which will end up being futile in and of itself. But I think the reason why we don't understand suffering is because man... You have to admit this, please be honest. We're narcissistic. This whole world is just very narcissistic. It's, it's our, the compass of our hearts, we could say, automatically point towards self. The mantra of the day is that famous commercial is just have it your way. That's everyone's motto. Our thoughts are what can I get or what do I need or what's in it for me? How can you please me? What have you done for me lately? How's this going to benefit me? Me, me, me. I think, you know, if you read the Protestant reformers, they define sin as man turned in on himself, turned or curved inward. And I think they, they, you couldn't describe sin more accurately than that. It's man being selfish. What's in it for me? And our natural bent then is inward. Automatically, it, the, our compass of our hearts automatically directs us to self, self-justification, self-salvation, self-righteousness, self-worth. And our instinct then, and when suffering strikes, when something um, chaotic happens in our life, well, like this young girl who had this tragic accident, is to ask, why? That's the first question we often think of, is to ask, Why? Why, God, why would you allow something to happen to me? Why would you let your people suffer when the people who are not serving you are seemingly living in prosperity? I think David went through that. I think it's in Psalm 37. He asked that same question. But why? Why me, God? Why? And can't you see the selfishness in those questions? It's all about yourself. And you don't want to hear that necessarily when you're going through a tough time. But to ask why is to miss the who of suffering. And that's important. Because at the end of the day, it's not uh, an explanation that we need. It's Jesus that we need in suffering. At the end of the day, the only thing that matters when adversity arises is who you're looking for to, for relief. Now, we've, um, I'll say this is also that suffering is universal. That's why I said it unites us as human beings. It's universal. You can't escape it. It's going to strike you. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And for Christians and non-Christians alike, suffering and adversity, you could say, if our lives, and I'll use this illustration later, so just kind of keep it in your head, if our lives are like a tapestry, suffering is the thread of that tapestry. It's what forms it. It's what makes it. It's what makes you who you are. And they're part of the world we live in. Verse 20 says, look at verse 20 again, For the creature was made subject to vanity, or subject to futility, or to depravity. David Jeremiah says it like this, Trouble is like home. You're either there, you're coming from it, or you're on your way to it. You can't escape it. It's universal. So, again, what are we to do with it? Well, Let's think about back in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they didn't just, it didn't just affect their souls and their lives. It affected their whole world. Their lives were perfect before. Again, there was no suffering before sin. And that's very important. 
Look at verse uh, 22 and 23. It says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now, and not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit the redemption of our body. The, nature itself is groaning. Nature itself is waiting to be redeemed, to be restored, to Eden-like glory. It's, it's waiting to be restored. The curse of sin has broken not just man, but nature itself. It's broken everything. And this is important because if suffering was non-existent before the fall and before sin entered the world, thus if suffering is the result of sin entering the world, the solution to sin does not reside in sinful people. You can't turn to yourself to escape suffering. You can't turn to yourself to find an answer to suffering. Broken people can't fix their own brokenness. Our view of suffering has been skewed, I think, by this narcissism, by this, this focus on me, this focus on self, by this focus on how can I make myself get through this. And when viewed at the micro level, let's say our lives are a tapestry. And at the micro level, you're like this. And, you're, and you know what a tapestry is, right? It's like a big picture that's made out of carpet. It's just hanging on the wall. They have them all over in the castles in Europe and stuff. But let's say you are touring a castle in Europe and you go up to this tapestry and you're looking at it and you're right here. What do you see? What do you think you can see if the tapestry is right here in front of your face? Absolutely nothing except for threads. You see all the minuscule threads that make up the tapestry. But if you were to look at it, let's say back here, you can see a picture a beautiful picture of what it's supposed to be. Maybe it's a knight riding on a horse, I don't know. That's the same thing with suffering. When you're in it, all you can see is the threads. All you can see is the pain. All you can see is the heartache. But years later, you see that God was in it. That God was the one who was working it out. And all those threads create something beautiful. You could say a tapestry of grace. That's what your life is. It's a tapestry of grace that God weaves with suffering. With sometimes deep suffering. Stuff that we don't like. But it's all to make you who you are. This is what we will call suffering, honestly. Now, I, I remember a chapel message I heard a couple of years ago. One that sort of struck a bad nerve with me. <laughs> One that I didn't really like and I wanted to walk out of. <laughs> the man was speaking on the subject of death and how Christians shouldn't mourn the loss of life because it's merely passing into something greater, something heavenly. And the gist of his talk, what I gathered, was that mourning death reveal, reveals a lack of faith. Now to me, how categorically untrue is that statement? It, it is categorically against the gospel and against the Bible and against the Christian faith. And I think that our culture has become so, or I would say our Christianity has become so inundated with that. With, if you, have you ever heard of the phrase performancism? Meaning that what we do in life is what we are and is all based on performance and what you're doing and what you can make of yourself. And this has creeped in the church and it's dangerous because a performance-driven culture has no room for sufferers. <laughs> has no room for people who are maybe going through a hard time and they're doubting. 
They don't know. They can't see God in that in that trial. And if that creeps into the church, are, should we be surprised then that people are leaving? When we have no room for mercy and grace for people who are suffering, it's no wonder people are leaving us in droves because there's no comfort when they come to the church. It's only you should have more faith. And I believe that there... We're going to talk about these. That was a long introduction. We have three views, I think, of suffering. I don't think these are the only three, but I think these are the main three. And there's two that are false, and there's one that is true. We're going to address the two false ones first. So jumping off... This topic of suffering, I think the first one that is detrimental is suffering morally. Suffering morally. This puts everything in the sufferer's hands and makes suffering out to be some sort of strange yet disturbingly prestigious path to self-improvement and self-transformation. You hear this all the time on shows like Oprah and stuff where they have people who have gone through a hard time and it's what have you made yourself now because of what you have learned And see, it sounds really good. That sounds good, that we should improve ourselves through this hard time. But it puts you in the driver's seat, not God, not the Holy Spirit. Moralizing suffering, then, is karmic. It's very karma-driven. What you give in this life is what you will get. So, therefore, don't do bad things or bad stuff is going to happen to you. Or as Tolkien put it, keep your nose out of trouble and no trouble will come to you. <laughs> See how, how that it sounds kind of good. You can tell your kids that. I'll tell my kids that one day when I have kids. <laughs> but see how karma-driven that is? See, sometimes we Christians can have a little karma creep in and we just sprinkle a little Jesus on top and we think it's going to be okay. And we live in that world. We live in a world that's karma-driven and a this-for-that world where everything is conditional and everything is what we give in life is what you will receive. So if you want good things, just be good. And there's the idea that you know, what goes around come, comes around is so prevalent that we don't even question it anymore. And it's appealing to us. Karma is appealing to us because it puts you in control. It puts you in the driver's seat. And I think that if there's one thing that we like more than anything, it's control. We want to control things. We want to be in the driver's seat of our lives, of what we're going to do and what's going to happen to us. And moralizing suffering does just that, that you're in control, so just make yourself better through this situation. And I think that is detrimental to the sufferer, and it skews the gospel and what it's supposed to do. And also, moralizing suffering views suffering as justice. It's you're in pain because you obviously did something wrong to deserve it. You know, remember, that's the story of Job. That's the whole point of Job. They spent umpteen chapters, his friends, trying to figure out what he did wrong. You did something wrong, Job. What did you do? What did you do to lose everything that you had? Obviously, it was something. Even his wife was saying, curse God and die. So, what did you do wrong to deserve this? That's suffering morally. Moralizing suffering views suffering as sort of, as we said, the catalyst for self-improvement and for, and for personal progress. It sort of is the way that you can make yourself better. And see how that sounds kind of good. It sounds kind of, you know, uplifting and motivational and new agey. But the struggle, they, they, they postulate that the struggle is good if you can make yourself good. If you can somehow, in some way, remake yourself into something better 
And this, I think, lofts the transformational aspect to higher degrees than the one who is doing the transformation. It put, again, it puts you in the driver's seat, and it has God just far off in the distance saying, come on, get through this. Don't you believe in me? That's what moralizing suffering says. That God's at the top of the staircase yelling down, just climb up to me and make yourself better. That's not God. That's not the God of the Bible. Suffering this way, suffering morally ends in you getting better and emerging remade and reshaped and reformed, or you'll be deemed a failure. And in a world driven by performancism, that's tantamount to death. If you're uh, labeled a failure, that's a death sentence in our world. So suffering morally, detrimental. But I think another one that I think is even more sneaky is suffering minimally. Suffering minimally. This is destructive because it treats Scripture as nothing more than, I'll say, a, uh, a spiritual shush or a Jesus juke. Have you ever heard that term before, Jesus juke? Maybe not. Maybe if you read some Christian blogs, you'll be familiar with that. But what I'm meaning when I say that, maybe you're familiar with this. That, say, you come up with a Christian brother and he says, yeah, I've just been diagnosed with, with a very bad illness. And you say, well... God's the great physician, right? And you kind of juke around the conversation. Or you have someone who says, you know, I, I just lost my job. I don't, I don't know how I'm going to provide for my wife and kids. You would say, wow, uh, that's, that's difficult, um, but all things work together for good, right? Jesus juke. Or you say, my husband just left me with, with the woman he was having an affair with. And you say, man, that's tough, you know, but God loves you, right? And you kind of juke around the situation. We don't even think about that, but sometimes we kind of use Scripture as a way to sidestep hard situations for people. Too often we're made to feel uncomfortable with someone's grief, and we use God's Word to sidestep, to skirt those situations. And more often than not, our attempts to help sufferers come across as nothing more than flippant encouragements and trite comforts that have less weight than, I would say, a feather in a tornado. You know, I like what Donald Barnhouse, he has a commentary in Romans, and he says this, You may tell a man who is in the fire that when he is tried, he will come forth as gold, but there is a moment when the flames are far more real than the gold. We need to know that life with its sufferings has a definite purpose, and that we are not alone in those sufferings. Excuse me. Minimizing suffering tries to explain your situation by reminding you that, you that someone else has it worse. Have you ever told someone this? Well, just think about the people who are being persecuted somewhere else. See how that is detrimental to the sufferer? You're not comforting them. You're telling them something else, somebody else has it worse. You're not helping them. If you really want to help a sufferer, you should practice what I believe is the forgotten art of listening. Don't try to fix things. Just be there. You know, I'm not, I, I, I shouldn't even have to preface this, but I'm not an expert on marriage in any way. But there's, there's one thing that I've learned the past two and a half years, that when a woman has a problem, you don't necessarily have to fix it. You just have to listen. See, men are natural fixers. Most of the time, most men would would agree with that. You want to fix the problem and move on from the problem and not have to dwell on the problem anymore. 
But that's not always what she needs. <laughs> she doesn't need you to fix the problem. She needs you to be there with her in the problem. And some, that's exactly what Jesus is doing for us, and that's exactly what we're called to do with other people who are suffering. Not to necessarily fix their problems, but to be there and show them Jesus in the problems. But suffering people need more than a, a Jesus juke or an explanation, is, and, and more than answers, is God. I wrote this thought down, just came to me today when I was reviewing this, is that we're not called to throw Jesus at sufferers, we're called to be Jesus to them. That's what you're called, Ephesians 5, we're called to imitate Christ. Be little Christ, that's what Christians means. Little Christ. We're called to be Jesus for them. In the fire, in the flame, in the flood, in all those trying situations. It's not necessarily throwing out these verses, which can be good. It's being there with them. Just being there with them, showing you that you're not going to leave them. Just like God says to us in Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And I would say this even more so on top of that, is that no amount of suffering, or I would say this, let me rephrase that, no amount of explaining or trying to decipher a tragic situation will take away the toll that it has on your life. One writer says that explanations are ultimately a substitute for trust. That's what I think Paul was getting at when he says in verse 24, where he says, for we are saved, excuse me, by hope, but hope that is seen is, is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? Explanations are a substitute for trust. Explanations remove the element of faith. Trials then force us then to trust in sheer grace, as Martin Luther said. Martin Luther said that the hardest thing for someone to trust in is to sheer grace. To nothing but grace. In all of our lives, that's what Jesus is doing. So, uh, I want to, I'm way over time probably already, but um, I can go long because I'm the pastor's kid and because I inherited two generations of long-windedness. So, <laughs> so how do we suffer honestly when we're trudging through the muck and the grime and the, film of this, the filth of this life? How do we suffer triumphantly, honestly, with resolve? Well, I believe it's this, that suffering honestly li means living with what Oswald Chambers says, breathless expectation. Being uncertain of everything else, but being certain of God. And that's the essence of the Christian life, I believe. He says it's the, it's the life of gracious, excuse me, Chambers says it's the life of gracious uncertainty. It's the mark of the spiritual life. To be certain of God means that we are uncertain in all our ways, Uncertain of the next step. Uncertain of what he is going to do next. Now that sounds crazy. How can I be uncertain? But isn't that what Jesus said to his disciples? You don't even know what tomorrow holds. But you know what is certain? You know what is solid? You know what is forever? Jesus Christ. You're not sure of what's going to happen next. You're not sure how it's, your situation is going to play out. How this suffering is going to end. How it's going to play out. But you are sure of God and His character and His grace. And that is unflinching and unchanging and unwavering. You don't know what tomorrow holds. 
Chambers went on to say that our life, that God packs our lives with with surprises all the time. And I think that's what Jesus was getting at when he said, "Take therefore, therefore, no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof." And then the apostle James he says, "For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appeareth for a little while, and then vanisheth away." I think what it means is. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't wrestle with the why fors and the how comes and, and the why, God. But simply rest in the certainty of Jesus' grace, which is the only thing that enables you, as one writer said, to have remarkable joy and radical loss. Faith, Chambers went on to say, Oswald Chambers, faith never knows where it is being led, but it loves the one who is leading. It never knows. I don't think Abraham knew where he was going. We always hear that story of Abraham, that he was just told to go, and I'm going to tell you when to stop. He didn't know. We don't know. We, uh, I think about back in 2009, 2009, my dad, I remember this really distinctly, that my dad preached a message on that. It was right around the new year. I think it was like January 5th or something like that. And he preached a message on don't, or just be prepared for anything that this, this life could what could happen in life in this next year, these next 365 days or so. And the very next day, I challenged that message by getting into a head-on car collision on a two-lane road right near here. (laughs) We don't know what tomorrow holds. We don't know what's going to happen. But you know the God who does. You know the God in His grace that will never fail you, will never forsake you. Suffering, honestly, is the life that's relying on Jesus for everything. It's living in the remembrance of what Jesus has done and allows Paul to say this. Flip over to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Suffering, honestly, allows Paul to say this. 2 Corinthians 4, 8. We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, cast down, but not destroyed, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. What allowed Paul to say that was not that he was pushing through his suffering by trying to say that someone else might have it worse, or he wasn't trying to push through his suffering to say that that I'm trying to make myself better. It was the gospel. As he says right there, the, the life of Jesus, what does he say? Uh, verse 10, um, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body, or excuse me, the, read the wrong phrase, verse 10, always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. That's the gospel. The gospel is the only thing that allows us to push through suffering and say that everything in Christ I already have. Everything I need in Christ, I have. And a constant remembrance of this gospel, then, is what what will push us to our source of joy, God himself. It's what will allow us to say, again with the Apostle Paul of Philippians 3, I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ. The Puritans used to call suffering God's dreadful withdrawal. It's what, allows, it's what God uses in our lives to say, are you really trusting in me? It puts feet to what you say, I think. God's dreadful withdrawal. 
It's what allows us to see that our only consolation in all this confusion and all this chaos and all this trial remains ever the same. You know what that is? It's the unrelenting, unremitting, unflinching grace of God, our Heavenly Father. One writer says this, God withdraws from us in order to make our souls long for Him even more. Instead of relieving us from our problems, God intends to demonstrate His sufficiency in our problems. And I think that's what God is doing. All throughout our lives, God is proving Himself sufficient and ourselves weak. I'm going to take a really quick rabbit trail, and this is planned, so I'm allowed to do it. I think that we have the course of the Christian life messed up. I think we think that the Christian life is all about getting stronger and getting better and getting even more independent. But that last word is scary. The Christian life is not about greater and greater independence. It's about greater and greater dependence. The prayer of your life at the beginning of your Christian faith is, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And the prayer of your life at the end of your life is, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It doesn't change. It's greater and greater dependence. Greater and greater realization of, I am weak, yet God is strong. That'll change. That's what God is trying to work in your life, that all the time, that you don't have control, that you're not strong, but I am. That's what He's doing through suffering. That's what He's doing through trials. He's wrestling control from your hands to make you realize that you are weak and I am strong. Okay, end of tangent. So you might be saying that, yeah, right, that's, pretty, that's too good to be true. God's never been that good to me. You have no idea what I'm going through. And you're right, I don't. I don't know what you don't, you're going through. I have no idea what you're suffering It could be a marriage that's lost its spark. It could be an argument with parents, a death of a loved one, a breakup with a boyfriend or a girlfriend. It could be a diagnosis of cancer, or it could be a car wreck or a failing grade, an unpayable debt, a lost job, a financial sinkhole, questions about the future, or regrets about the past. I don't know what you're suffering, and I'm not trying to minimize it or moralize it. I'm helping you realize that God is with you in it. You know, as a Christian, or I should say this, as a non-Christian, you might be suffering all these things, and you have to stop right there at the uncertainty. As a a sufferer that doesn't have Christ, you stop at uncertainty. But as a sufferer with Christ, you stop at the certainty of God. And that's what allows you to suffer honestly. Honestly. The promise for the believer is that all things work together for good to them that love God who are called according to His purpose. Which means you're probably still uncertain of those things. And I guarantee that you are, and I have been too. But you're confident of God. You're certain of God. See, God, I would say this, God's not just the God of the highs. He's the God of the lows. He's the comforter, as it says in the Psalms, in the valley of the shadow of death. He's the deliverer for the desperate and the destitute and the distressed. He's not there to deliver us out of suffering, but to be with us in suffering. He is Emmanuel, which means God with us, 
which I would say then is this, Emmanuel in cancer, Emmanuel in death, Emmanuel in failure, Emmanuel in a breakup, Emmanuel in a layoff, Emmanuel in a car wreck, Emmanuel all the time. He is God with us regardless of our circumstances. You who are in Christ are suffering with Christ. As it says in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, that Jesus is touched with our infirmities so that we may more boldly press on to the throne of grace. He is afflicted when we are afflicted. He is, suffers when we suffer. And the thrust of Scripture is not for you to, to sort of hold on to Jesus with all your might. The, the, the command of Scripture is not for you to white-knuckle God. The command of Scripture is that regardless of what's going on, Jesus has a hold of you, no matter what. That's what the end of Romans 8 means. Nothing can separate you. His resolute promise is, don't you let go. Flip over to Isaiah 43. The resolute promise of Scripture is, don't you let go, for I am holding on to you. Or as Isaiah says, Fear not, for I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. When thou passest through the waters, I will be with thee, and through the rivers they shall not overflow thee. When thou walkest through the fire, they, thou shalt not be burned, neither shall the flame kindle upon thee. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior." That's the promise. Don't you let go, believer. Don't you let go, sufferer. I am with you. You are mine. The, the testimony of all Christians is Psalm 66.12, which says, We went through fire and through water, but you brought us into a wealthy place. You brought us out of it. And right now you only... I would say this. Right now you might only see the badness. As we said earlier, you might only see the threads. You might only see the little things that are making up the flames, the car wrecks, the failures, all that mayhem and all that suffering, the minuscule threads of life. But God is doing something wonderful in and through you. Remember that girl that I told you about? She's sitting on the front row. It's my wife. I, uh, I am amazed by my wife's story. She was involved in that car wreck, and she, she uh, broke her hip when she was 14. She went through a lot of suffering for much of her life back then. And I would say that she is an expert on suffering. She's had to go through a lot. But without that, I don't think she would be where she is today. I don't think she would be right here by my side, being as faithful as she is, being as trusting as she is, as loyal as she is. But what that trial did was wrestled control of her life and gave it to God. That day she, she reignited uh, her love for God and rededicated her life to say, God, if you want me in ministry, I will do that. And without that time, I don't know where she would be. And I would say without what I said earlier, that car accident that I got in, I don't know where I would be. In that moment, though, it wasn't good. But now she can obviously say, she looks back, that it has proven good for her. 
You know, I think about, too, a couple years, a long time ago, when my cousin was six years old, she was diagnosed with leukemia. Was that good? I don't think so. Or a couple years before that, when I lost, my mom lost her mom. I don't think that moment was good. But it's made my mom into who she is today. Maybe you've lost someone close to you. Maybe you've gone through the same sorts of things. And right now, it does not seem good. It does not seem that all things are working together for good. But that's suffering minimally. That's suffering morally. Suffering honestly is realizing that God is still God. And that I would say this, that God's not just sovereign over time. He's sovereign over timing. I heard a preacher say this, that God doesn't drive an ambulance. He never arrives late to an accident. It's impossible for God to make a mistake. It's impossible to God to arrive late in your life. This is precisely where God wants you. And if you compare yourself, maybe this person has it better. Or maybe this person has it worse. And if you compare yourself... As Paul says, among yourselves, you're going to ruin what God has for you. Each life, each tapestry of life, each tapestry of grace is unique. He's doing something unique in your life. So don't get lost in the suffering. Don't get lost in the threads. If you're still in 2 Corinthians 4, which you're not, but flip back to 2 Corinthians 4. We're going to read a few more verses there and then we'll close. Don't get lost in the threads, in the suffering. It might seem more real than anything else. But you have to, that's, why, that's why I would say this, that Martin Luther encouraged all of his readers to say, preach the gospel to yourself every day. You know why? Because that's what's going to make you realize that God is real and He is there with you, as it says in Isaiah 43, in the suffering. 2 Corinthians 4, 15, For all things, all things are for your sakes, that the abundant grace might through the thanksgiving of many redound to the glory of God, for which cause we faint not, but though our outward man perish, excuse me, yet the inward man is renewed day by day, for light our affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. God takes our trauma and he turns it into his triumph. He takes our grief and he turns it into his glory. He's got you in his hand. He has you in his hand. Matthew 10, 29, and no one can take you out of it. No one can pluck you from the hand of God. 